these gorillas that lost their mothers did perfectly well. And there wasn't any difference in kind of how long they survived. There wasn't any difference in kind of when they first were able to reproduce. Um, and it really suggested that they were doing doing fine, even though they lost their mothers. And we think that's because of this, this larger cohesive group and the support that they get from, from other group members. Greetings, humans, and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science edition number 24. I am Lefteris, that annoying guy that asks many questions to scientists and academics until I understand what, how, and why they do what they do. I'm very excited for today's show since we're talking about mountain gorillas. A couple of weeks ago, in my newsletter, I included an article about gorillas and how do they cope when they lose their mothers. I contacted one of the researchers in the paper, and this week we're talking with Dr. Robin Morrison to find out more. But as always, before we go with the show, we have some housekeeping. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to it and share it with your friends that might like it too. Follow me on Twitter at Lefteris underscore asks, and we also now have an Instagram page under the same name, which is very exciting. Additionally, I have a weekly newsletter where I share my favorite news from the world of science and academia. I have small explanations and links to the research for anyone who wants to find out more. If you like that, go to the show notes and click that link to subscribe to the newsletter. Lastly, in the show notes, you'll find links that you can support me in doing this by donating. Let's now meet Dr. Robin Morrison. Hi, um, I am Dr. Robin Morrison. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, and my job is looking at all of their long-term data to to study interesting gorilla behaviors. Studying the social life of humans is a complicated subject in its own right. How do you start studying the social life of gorillas, I wonder? What is the edge that you have to find in order to unentangle the knot that is the social life of gorillas? I think the edge is, is really just sitting and watching them. Right. And most most people that study gorillas start with kind of years of just sitting and watching, um, which which sounds like it would be quite dull. And I think some people do find it dull. But you you meet these people that really love animals and love gorillas. And then you'll just you can just sit and watch for days and days. So that's kind of the key is like having sitting and watching and then obviously starting to kind of write down in a really methodological way, like exactly what they're doing when. And then like the part after that is like teasing apart kind of why they might be doing these things and what that's about. I was trying to imagine the daily life of someone doing this kind of research. It's easy for me to empathize with a researcher that goes to the lab every day. I know more or less how they think. I have no idea what is the methods of a researcher that has to go and live in the wild with a big family of gorillas to do research. One of the problems with you know studying wild animals, especially kind of endangered wild animals, is that you can't do experiments, right? You're not allowed to change anything. You can sit and observe, but you can't kind of test in the same way. You can't change one thing and see what happens. So really what we have to do is we kind of sit and watch and observe and just record over a huge amount of time. Um, but the way that works, um, mostly for gorillas, is that you habituate a group, you get them really used to human contact so that you can be in that group and watch them. Um, and then you kind of, you learn what kind of the normal behaviors are, what sort of what sort of behavioral patterns there are. 
and then you start recording. So what we do is we pick one individual each hour and we follow that one individual and we look at things like, you know, who who is in physical contact with them, who is nearby to them, who are they playing with, whether there's any kind of dominance interactions, whether there's any sorts of aggression, all of those things get recorded. Um, and I'm super lucky because I'm coming in kind of 50 years after this was started. So we've got 50 years of data of what was this gorilla doing in this hour? What did this gorilla do in this hour? Um, and so when we combine all of that data, the massive kind of long-term efforts of all of these different people, then we can like tease apart things that happen, particularly in these rare situations, right? So we can't, if we're interested in what happens when a gorilla loses their mother, we obviously can't take their mother away. That's not an option. So we, we sit and we watch them for 50 years and we go, okay, it happened 50 times, uh, you know, once every year, roughly for the last 50 years. And so we can see what happens when those events occur. Uh, but of course it's so rare and we just have to be there watching in case something happens. In order for a researcher to get data that is reliable for each gorilla, they need to make sure that the gorilla is used in their presence. Um, so with the mountain gorillas that, that I work with, they were habituated 50 years ago. So that whole population is just really used to humans. And if anything, we have to be really careful not to go too close because they're just so used to having humans around. Um, but when I worked on Western lowland gorillas, they were much less well habituated. And they're also just a little bit more wary of humans in general. That's one of the differences we see between them. Um, and so in Western lowland gorillas, it can take up to five years to habituate them to humans. So one of my first jobs was helping with that. And it would really be, you you know, you walk for, for miles and miles every day, you finally find the group and you just like try and hope that they don't run away from you as much as they did the day before. And it's such a slow process of kind of gradually kind of sort of gaining their trust, just getting them used to having humans around. Um, but yeah, you with, there were a lot of rules about kind of, if the dominant male starts to get aggressive, then you kind of back away, give them some space. And maybe you go back, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, if he's still aggressive, then you're done for the day. You go home and you wait for them to kind of get used to you. It's all, it's always got to be on the gorilla's terms. Like that's the main, the main thing that you've got to bear in mind when you're, you're visiting these gorilla groups is that you're in their space, right? They're in charge and they will tolerate you. But if they don't tolerate you, then you leave. And that's kind of, that's, yeah, you gain the gorilla's trust and, and that's kind of the way to learn about them, to learn about their behaviors and, and what's going on in the groups. It can be quite dangerous, especially those kind of early days when the groups really don't, haven't had much interaction with humans before. Or if they have, they might have been kind of quite, quite dangerous interactions. They might have been kind of interacting with poachers and it might have been kind of quite scary um, like dangerous events. So the, the early days of habituation can be really dangerous and you have to be incredibly cautious. And that's why it's all got to be kind of on the gorilla's terms. They're very good. I would say they're very good at letting you know when they're annoyed or when, when they're kind of angry, you can really read them, right? Because there's a lot of like, they'll start to bark and they'll start to smash things. And they do, they like bluff charge is something that happens kind of early on as like a warning. So they, they kind of charge at you and stop just before they get to you, which is mildly terrifying, I would say. Um, but the, the rule is, the rule is you kind of sit there, you don't look, you make yourself small. Um, and, you know, it's 
apparently always a bluff charge, but you know there are times when it, when it isn't. So you have to be kind of very aware of, okay, well, he's bluff charged me now. That means he's annoyed. I'm going to back away. I'm going to give him some serious space. Um, uh, yeah, they're very communicative in that sense. Um, so it's all about kind of reading their behavior and being slow and being very careful. Um, but yeah, there are there are real dangers of, of getting that close to you know, such a big, strong animal. Um, and that kind of their natural reaction is to defend their group, um, especially from something kind of unknown, some potential threat. So you've just got to be very wary of that. Um, but mostly they're incredibly peaceful. Before we try to understand how motherless gorillas adapt in their society when they lose their mothers, I need to find out what is the social structure of gorillas in the first place. Do they have a prime minister or a king? Most gorillas live in groups with one dominant adult male. So he would be kind of the king as you, as you refer to him. So the, the dominant male of the group, he kind of calls the shots. He's, you know, the, the big one in charge. And you can see that in the kind of the way the group moves, they'll all like move out of his way if he's, you know, trying to eat some food or something like that. Um, he's kind of the dominant one. Um, and then there'll be multiple adult females and then all of their offspring. Um, and you also get solitary males. So these are males that haven't yet managed to kind of convince any females to join their group. So they're just kind of uh, roaming the forest on their own, hoping that they might be able to attract some females at some point. Um, but actually in mountain gorillas, we get these these single male groups, these ones with just one kind of adult dominant male, and we also get multi-male groups. So they also, they still have this dominant adult male, but there are kind of a few uh, sort of straggler males, the ones that kind of grew up in the group and don't want to leave yet. So they, they sometimes remain in the group and then those groups can get quite big. Um, but these, these group units are kind of really the core social social unit of the of the group um, of, of sorry of gorillas and they travel around kind of in these groups they build nests at night in these groups and they're kind of really always associating and I guess these groups are usually about 12 gorillas but we've seen up to 65 was the biggest we've ever seen which is pretty massive when you think of like all of these gorillas kind of moving together feeding together traveling again building their night nests at night together it's like a, a lot of a lot of different moving individuals to kind of coordinate. In the research that Dr. Robin Morrison did, she looked at data across 50 years for the gorillas to see how losing their mothers affected their lives and how did the dynamic of the social group change. Yeah, so we looked at, at this data, as you say, kind of across 50 years and we were really expecting there to be potentially some kind of costs to these young gorillas that lost their mothers. We know in other primates, it can be really detrimental and in humans too, right? Because your mother's such a huge part of your social life when you're very young. Um, they're so important for helping you kind of find food, find, find, um, kind of make friends, integrate within the group. We see that across all primates. Um, so we looked at this within gorillas and we were really expecting to potentially see the same sorts of things going on. So we were expecting maybe they die younger, maybe they are kind of less good at reproducing themselves, all these sorts of things kind of that impact an individual's long-term fitness. Um, but what we found when we looked into it in these, in these gorilla groups is that actually these these young gorillas that lost their mothers between the ages of about two and, and eight. So this is when they're kind of old enough to feed themselves. So old enough to survive, but kind of not really mature yet, not adults yet. 
what we found, these gorillas that lost their mothers did perfectly well. And there wasn't any difference in kind of how long they survived. There wasn't any difference in kind of when they first were able to reproduce. Um, and it really suggested that they were doing doing fine, even though they lost their mothers. And we think that's because of this this larger cohesive group and the support that they get from, from other group members. If they're too young, I mean, like all mammals, right, gorillas, um, gorillas are dependent on their mothers for, for food, for milk when they're young. Um, and so really under the age of two, all of the infants that we saw under that age died. Um, but kind of from the age of about one, they start eating food on their own. So they'll start having kind of some milk and some some food. And then by about two, there's, they're, they're eating enough food that it seems like it's, it's possible that they do survive. So that's why we're really interested in that kind of the, the ages after two, right? When it's possible to survive, but there's also, you know, this really strong chance that you're, you're losing all of these benefits of having your mother around. So you might not be as successful. Before we went into more details about the specific behaviors, I was wondering, how much data would you need in order to come to a conclusion on a research topic like that? So one thing we looked at is their survival, right? So for that, we needed we needed really at least kind of 50 individuals to be looking at kind of, did they survive just as well as the other kind of 100 gorillas that didn't? Um, but we also need to see like enough of their lifetime. It's not useful to say, you know, they survived until they were 12. What we really need is kind of this 50 years of data to say, oh, well, these ones survived until they were kind of 38, right? That's the sort of data we need there. Um, and then we wanted to look at their social interactions. So what it looked like is, is kind of in a lot of other species, the reasons why individuals suffer when they lose their mothers is that it's really hard to integrate in the social group, right? The mother kind of guides that and they kind of help them be competitive, things like food, um, kind of access to mates, all of those things. And so we thought really the social, their social interactions is a really important thing to look at. So we use kind of all of their, all of their data on kind of who they're close to and who they're interacting with. When we looked at it kind of before their mother died and after their mother died to really understand kind of how does this change and so we can build this whole social network and look at how their network changes so not only are they strengthening certain bonds um, but they're also kind of becoming more integrated in the network so more central within this social network of of the gorilla group many times when you're doing research you know what to expect from some tests however how surprising was the fact that motherless gorillas actually do fine and that the dominant male takes charge? I think it's surprising when you are comparing it with other primates. It's quite unusual. I don't think it was surprising to people that have seen this happen in the world. I think you kind know, of the researchers that are really studying these groups regularly have really seen that these dominant males in particular take on much more of a caring role when young gorillas lose them lose lose their mothers. So things like they each gorilla builds a nest at night, but young gorillas, so if they're kind of under the age of about four, they they stay in their mother's nests. But what we see in these in these orphan gorillas is that they go into the nest with the dominant male. Um, and he seems to just spend much more time kind of really close proximity, really kind of looking out for these young gorillas. Um, which is, is quite unusual, especially when you think about how it's these kind of polygynous groups, right? It's one male, multiple females, and loads of offspring. And you kind of wouldn't expect the, the 
the dominant male to be taking on this sort of caring role. And you also might expect it to be only when it's their genetic offspring, right? So only when when they're the father of this offspring do they take on this role. But that's not what we found either. We found that it's really the dominant male has this caring responsibility for all of the young gorillas in their group. And it seems like maybe that's part of being the dominant male of a group. That's kind of part of the role that they take on is kind of looking out for everyone in the group and looking out especially for these these younger gorillas without mothers. And how about the females in the group? Do they try to help with the orphan gorilla and try to act as a mother or do they keep for themselves and their offsprings? Yeah, that's a great question. And we actually we really didn't see that sort of behavior. So in other species, you might expect other females to adopt these young orphaned um, individuals, but we don't see that at all in the gorillas. What we're seeing is kind of the dominant male takes on most of this responsibility. And then it's also kind of shared amongst all the other group members. So other females, but also a lot of kind of other young gorillas. Um, so actually, mostly what we found is that it's, it's the donut male and then individuals that are the same sort of age, right? So you can think of them as like kind of the school friends, the equivalent of, of your schoolmates, right? Individuals that are the same sort of age, you spend more time hanging out with your friends, right? Um, but we don't really see it at all from, from other females as much. They, they, I guess they have, you know, their priority is their own offspring. Um, so we seem to see less um, support from them. Since these gorillas are very well habituated by humans and they're very used to their presence, is there a way to understand if the gorillas have actually changed their behavior because the humans are there? Because if the gorillas are changing their behaviors because humans are there, then you're learning less about the gorillas as a society and more about how the gorillas react with the humans. I mean, it really depends on the habitat. The goal is to kind of make as little influence the gorillas as little as possible and it helps that they're incredibly well habituated now so what what we struggle with is that kind of a dominant male will decide to be kind of heading in your direction you've just got to clear out the way as fast as you can so that you kind of aren't getting too close to them um but yeah it's a, it's a really difficult question to answer right have they changed their behavior because humans are there um and one way we're kind of trying to get at this question is using things like camera traps. So kind of automated cameras that record their behavior when we're not there and kind of comparing what's going on when we're not there with what's going on when we are there. Um, especially it, it's thought that we could particularly influence their behavior when they're quite unhabituated groups, right? The groups that aren't very used to humans, us being there can potentially really kind of influence what, how relaxed they are, what sort of behaviors are going on. Um, but I think with, with the gorillas that we study in Rwanda, they have all grown up in groups where humans have been there. They've never known a life where humans didn't come and visit them every day. So I think we're pretty, it's, it's hard to know, but we're pretty certain that we're not influencing their behavior too much. Um, but it's just one of those questions where, you know, if, we, if we're not there to observe them, how do we know what they're doing, right? So we can't really ever know except maybe using camera traps. <laughs> As we said, Dr. Morrison used 50 years worth of data in these mountain gorillas. I was wondering, what other sort of data does she have and what else can you research with 50 years of data? 
I think it gets really interesting when we reach this sort of point where we've got data across the whole lifetime of individuals. So things that we can look at are really what influenced their survival, right? And these are really helpful in kind of bigger picture questions about evolution, about how kind of individual fitness, right, their ability to survive and produce offspring, how does that influence um, kind of the species, right? So so we're looking at things like maybe how does their, their social lives across their, their whole life, how does that influence, you know, the number of offspring that they have, the number of kind of years that they survive, these kind of bigger questions about their whole lives, um, we can now really start to understand. So, you know, what is the best decision? Say you're kind of an eight-year-old female gorilla, just imagine it for a moment. <laughs> um, like, is the best thing to kind of leave your group? What happens if you kind of find a different male? Or what happens if you stay in your group and you kind of remain in that group of individuals that you know really well? Is that kind of a better decision versus kind of switching between multiple groups and reproducing in multiple groups? We can learn all about kind of the different strategies, really, of kind of being a successful gorilla um, and learn about that. Um, we can also look at things like how these groups interact with each other. One of the things I'm really fascinated in at the moment is the relationships that actually extend between gorilla groups. So they interact quite rarely, but we see them happen you know, a couple of times every year. And we also know that sometimes groups split. So they can be a, a strong, stable group and then they break apart and those groups continue to interact with each other, but quite rarely. We're looking at kind of how long do those relationships between groups, how long can they sustain them? Are they are they kind of similar? Do they maintain them over kind of decades? Do they maintain them over lifetimes? Or even kind of passing them down the generations of guerrilla groups? It's all those sorts of questions about these really long-term social behaviors, these, these kind of the ways that our social lives shape our kind of ability to reproduce and survive. All of those questions are things that we're really only just being able to ask now that we've got all of this data. In a more general gorilla question, Dr. Morrison was mentioning two types of gorillas, the mountain gorillas and the western lowland gorillas. Now, in my newsletter, I used a picture of a gorilla to accompany the article from Dr. Morrison, but I have to tell you the truth. I have no idea what species of gorilla I used. There's actually four subspecies. So there's two species, and each species is made up of two subspecies. Um, but they're all subtly different. The, what, the one thing I find, it's very easy to tell a mountain gorilla and a western lowland gorilla apart, because mountain gorillas are a little bit bigger, and they're really fluffy. Um, so the ones, when you see a picture of a gorilla, you're like, wow, that hair is ridiculous, especially the babies. They've got like this crazy crazy hairstyles you go, oh yeah that one's a mountain gorilla because because they're just so fluffy um and western lowland gorillas are, you know a little bit a little bit smaller a little bit less exuberant in their hairstyles um but uh there's also you know a lot of genetic differences they've been separated for quite a long time and so we've got uh one of the species is kind of in in eastern africa and the other species in, is in Western Africa, right? So the two species are Eastern and Western gorillas. Um, but it is quite hard to tell some of the subspecies apart, especially. Um, so some gorilla experts will get very annoyed when they see kind of pictures in textbooks. And you're oh, you've got the wrong gorilla species. But, you know, there's probably maybe a couple hundred people in the world that are really going to spot it. 
curious to find out if the gorilla that I used for my newsletter was the correct gorilla. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that is that is something that often often annoys gorilla researchers, especially because you're kind of a lot a lot in a lot of the news they'll be kind of you're talking about mountain gorillas and then they use kind of a generic picture of a Western lowland gorilla and you go, No, it's not the right one. But I think most people wouldn't notice that. <laughs> Uh, uh, socially, how different they are? Like, in do they live in similar groups? Yeah, so they all they all live in these kind of social groups. The main difference is that the mountain gorillas can have multi male groups. So about half of groups is just this one dominant male, multiple females, and their offspring. Right, that's kind of your your standard gorilla social group. But then. In mountain gorillas, for some reason, they're doing both things at the same time. So you have some of those groups and then you have some multi-male groups. Um, and that's really the main difference in terms of their, their social behavior. A lot of it is quite similar. Um, mountain gorillas also groom each other. And that's something that's quite rare in other species of gorilla. And we think that's just because <laughs> partly because they're so fluffy, right? So you get a lot more kind of parasites in your hair and you, there's more need for grooming if, if you've got, you know, a bigger, fluffier coat. And that's part of because they're mountain gorillas, right? So they live somewhere a little bit colder. They need that extra fur to keep the wool. Talking with Dr. Morrison was the first time I was actually talking with a researcher that is not working directly in a university. So how does doing a research for a conservation fund compare to doing a research with a university? Yeah, it is a little bit different. Um, so... Obviously, now I'm working for a conservation organization. Um, and so sometimes the goals are a little bit different. So sometimes I go, oh, I think this question would be really cool. And and maybe my boss says, well, how does this, you know, how does this help us conserve gorillas? Maybe you can you know, focus in this direction. I, but I think I think that's probably true wherever you work. Um, I think, you know. Uh, there are there are people that have other ideas of kind of what might be the most useful area to 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 study in, but I get quite a lot of freedom and I get to to um, work with a whole lot of people that study gorillas, which which is amazing. I kind of went from a department where I was the only person that studied gorillas to a whole organization where there's a hundred hundred plus people learning about gorillas. Um, but I do have. Um, I, I set up kind of an honorary affiliation with with the university in Exeter because there are some things that kind of academia, it's, it's hard to get outside of academia and like a lot of those connections and things like going to talks and all that sort of stuff is really, is, is done in a similar way kind of in my conservation organization, but it's nice to do it as part of a university as well. So I feel like I've managed to, to find a way where I get kind of the best of both. I get kind of all the advantages of, of um, this kind of funding through a conservation organization and I get to also work work with the university if I want to. <laughs> Lastly, in a more personal note, I was wondering how did Dr. Morrison end up studying gorillas in Rwanda in the first place? Great question. I do get asked that a lot because it seems a bit bizarre that you can end up being somebody that studies gorillas. And I definitely, I definitely didn't think I would when I was a kid. I was like, oh, I always want to go and live in the forest with monkeys. But I don't think I ever thought that that was a real job that people did. Right, right. It's a, it's a bit of an unusual one. But I, I did an undergraduate degree in biology. Um, 
And I actually ended up studying, my first kind of time studying gorillas and studying apes was looking at disease evolution. So I was looking at kind of, uh, I was working on a project looking at the origins of HIV and malaria and kind of how we share so many diseases with gorillas and apes and other apes and kind of where that comes from. But really, I mean, I was fascinated by the genetics, but I think I always wanted to really study them in the wild and, and learn about their behavior. So I did my undergrad. And after that, I kind of wrote to, to somebody who had a gorilla study site. And, and I said, you know, I'm, re I'm really interested. I really want to do this. Can I come out? And she luckily said yes. So I just sort of just packed up my things and went off to the forest after I after I graduated. Um, and that worked out very well. You know, I sat in the forest, I watched them, and I went, "Oh yeah, this is this is what I want to do. This is fun. I really love this." Um, and so from there, I ended up doing a PhD um, at the University of Cambridge. But I also went back and I kind of worked at that same gorilla study site with those gorillas. Um, and yeah, I did a PhD and it, it's some, I don't think kind of social behavior was what I thought I was going to do at the start of my PhD. It kind of developed during it, but I'm so glad it is. So yeah, it's something I really fell in love with during my PhD, but I went into it thinking I was maybe going to do some sort of disease modeling thing. And I came out with, with a, yeah, a PhD in guerrilla social behavior. Um, but I'm really happy about that. <laughs> And that's it for another edition of Lefteris Ask Science. I'd like to thank Dr. Robin Morrison for her time and her very positive energy. I'm looking forward to find out more about her work and the Gorilla Fund. You can find links for her work and more information about the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund in the description of the show. And thank you for sticking around until the end. In the show notes, you'll find ways that you can support me in doing this, like buying me a coffee or an even easier way you can support me is by just sharing this episode with a friend. I really, really appreciate it. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and be kind. <laughs>